0: tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're hearing from Peter Thomas, a lifelong entrepreneur, real estate investor, developer, and financier. He's the chairman emeritus of the Entrepreneurs' Organization, and a major supporter of the EO Global Student Entrepreneurship Awards. He's ridden the roller coaster of business and life, seen his fortunes grow into the hundreds of millions of dollars, and lows where he had to rebuild from being over 70 million in the hole. He's also experienced terrible lows in his personal life, with the loss of his son to mental illness. This tragic experience propelled Peter to create the Todd Thomas Foundation and Life Pilot to teach countless people on values-based leadership and how to create a meaningful life. So what you're going to get out of this conversation is real-life advice from someone who refuses to quit. After 60 years in business, his energy is incredible and his lessons are powerful. There are lots of points we touch on in our conversation, from his philosophies to financing and from leadership to franchising. Tons to learn here and I'm happy Peter could share it with you. Enjoy the show. Peter, welcome to the show. Nice to be
1: here. Thanks, Corey. Uh,
0: I'm really looking forward to this Says you've got such a colorful background that that spans, I mean, a huge focus on real estate, but you're an entrepreneur in many different ways. So what I'd like to do is just get a background from you on your career and some of the ups and downs of what that's been.
1: <laughs> I mean, well, I'll try to do it very quickly. I was raised by a single parent, my mom, and I came over to Canada when I was six years old. And moved north into northern Alberta, a little town called Perryvale, north of Edmonton. I left there, left home when I was 15, and actually joined the Canadian Army. They had a, an apprentice program, and I joined that program, did my two years of high school, and then did five years of service in the Canadian Army, went to Egypt for a year. Hmm. Then got out of the Army, and I could shoot and type. So I, I tried, but couldn't get a job with <laughs> my gun, so <laughs> that didn't work. So typing. So I actually got a job with Stearns Rogers. As what they called a safety engineer, I had you know through the military you you all have to take safety safety work, so I went to the normal pipeline job. We up in northern Alberta, and worked there, and spent about a year at that and didn't like didn't see that was my my career. Couldn't see that doing. I'm about 22 then, and went back to Calgary and uh, got a job as a management trainee for an investment company, and got my broker's license to sell mutual funds, and that was the beginning. Of who Peter Thomas became. I recognized that as I got into sales, I recognized that I would be judged and paid according to my results, not how good looking I was or not how, <laughs> nothing but results. It pays results. So it took me a little bit to find myself, but at the end of five years, I, I really did find myself and I I learned to be focused and to really understand the art of a deal. You know, how to close deals and how to make deals. Okay. And during that journey, I got introduced to real estate and I was sold a piece of real estate and you know, within sort of 10 months, it went up and I made $30,000. And that was back in the early seventies. And wow, I, I had never made that kind of money. So I could see, boy, if I could make that money in one transaction, the real estate intrigued me as a future. And I got into real estate. I went into real estate and I started to understand primarily apartment buildings mostly focused on multi-unit apartments. And I'm still doing that to this day. That was more than 50 years ago, 74, and it's whatever it is now, 2000, 2021. So yeah. 50, 60 years later, I still fully absorbed in multifamily apartments, finding old apartments and renovating them and making them very hospital and attractive and affordable You know, and safe. So that really, that track has gone on. That one track's gone on forever. And I started myself. I started my career in in Canada, and I built up. And then I got lucky and acquired the Century 21 franchise for Canada, the real estate franchise. And I acquired that, and you know, kept that for many years. And when we built that up, when we sold it, it was doing about eight billion a year and had about eight thousand salespeople across Canada. Yeah, uh, so I sold that in about '87, and then started off. Went actually public, and I had acquired substantial small pieces of real estate across the country. And I rolled that all into one company called Samoth Capital Corporation and into a shell company actually, and took that shell to the Toronto Stock Exchange and raised $100 million in financing. And that took another meteoric rise in my career sort of thing. You know, I went from that, from the being you know, a franchisee and a small real estate player into a public company in Canada. Mm. And then had that, rode that one for a while, and then eventually sold that, went private again, sold to a group of of investors, real estate investors, and went down to the States, went down to Phoenix, Arizona, where I bought the land that we built the Four Seasons Hotel down here. And I built the Four Seasons down here in Phoenix. I say down here because I'm I'm here right now. And I got lucky again, really lucky, there was a piece of land available in San Antonio, Texas that was in a process. Everybody got into trouble a few several, maybe 25 years ago, and they created a resolution trust and the government. all these assets that were going bankrupt and dumped them into a basket and then guys had a bit of money were invited to buy stuff out of that basket had nothing to do with value what was spent on them it was what they would pay for the assets in the basket and i got lucky that this 1200 acres i bought we bought that for nine million dollars myself as a partner some canadian partners and literally took 150 million it grew over the years to 150 million dollars it's all public knowledge so i would just say it but it was just I've been so fortuitous and just lucky, you know, timing. Timing has been really incredible in my career. You know, the right – I would say that as you go through life, you're faced with choices, and I'm a guy who says yes, you know, and I work my way to no. But if if I see opportunity, I don't say, no, I don't want to do that. I say, yes, I can do that, or I think I can do that, or I can find the money to do that. So I I, I embrace it with yes. So that's, I think, one thing maybe the listeners could – Yeah,
0: I think it's a great point. I mean, it's when it comes to timing, if the timing's right, and you put your way in front of that luck, or you put your way in front of that opportunity, good things can happen.
1: Exactly. And, you know, you might not have the resources to buy it, you might not have the people that can buy it, you might have anything. But as you travel towards an exciting destination, people want to get on your bus, and they want to go where you're going. Yeah. Yeah because you've set the path of the journey. You know, it's like I, if I'm in Edmonton, I want to go to Calgary. But well, if I'm on that highway going to Calgary, no matter what car I get into, I'm going towards Calgary. Whereas if I was still in Edmonton looking for people, I probably wouldn't find somebody who wants to go to Calgary because I'd have to go through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Yep. So you get, get on the highway towards your destination and you'll meet the people along that highway to get you where you want to go.
0: Now, surely this whole path has not been all win, win, win. I bet resiliency and failure has played a major part in helping build who you are today. So what were some of those failures and how did you get through them? What were some of the the losses that came on with the epic wins?
1: Well, first of all, you know, Corey, I fail every day because to get a sale or get something successful, you got to go through how many no's, but I don't, it's what you consider. I don't consider, I don't consider no a failure or mm-hmm. not doing something successfully a failure. I consider that's what you got to do to get to yes. Yeah. <laughs> but my, my biggest, failure was I think when I was back in the early days in in Alberta and i leveraged myself too high and had several partners and we couldn't, the economy stopped in front of us and we couldn't pay our bills and sustain the growth that we had. So we had to wrap up that company and it took me five years to work my, didn't go bankrupt, but it took me five years to work my way out of the hole to get back, just to get back to even.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And now when you say you were, effectively your balance sheet was out of order. And you're right. you're over levered. So, by how much? Like, what is
1: 150 million?
0: <laughs> okay, 150 million in debt over what well, kind of equity?
1: Well, I, going into it, I had about a, I was the net worth was about 150 million, and it went down to minus 74. So the swing was <laughs> the swing was pretty big.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: yeah. And worked my way out of it. Like you know, like held on to the properties long enough to be able to sell them, negotiated with the lenders. You know.
0: So that's got to be a serious blow. That's got to hurt. So what was some of the, like, how did you talk to yourself about that? How did you get yourself through that?
1: (laughs) Well, I say the lowest point that I always tell the story about my wife, you know, I I was kind of doubting myself, you know, you want to stuff like that, you kind of doubt yourself. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, honey, I said, you know, if I lost all my money and we lost everything, would you still love me? I'll never forget her answer. She said, "I'll miss you, honey, but I but I'll always love you."
0: <laughs> <laughs> How supportive.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. So I actually what I did as a, as a strategy is I I had my failure, my failure there, which I took 24 hours a day, and I decided to work on success as well. And I couldn't work at success on top of the failure. I had to move it sideways. So, I started another pile. And I said, "Okay, I, you know, My wife was very successful over those years because I, I, I worked as a consultant for her on the new stuff and on the old stuff, I just kept trying to fix it. In fact, I, I had a CFO and he was CFO and he became my COO and I put him in charge of the mess and the lenders and everybody met with him, not with me. Hmm. He and I would strategize and talk about it and I had a lawyer as well fabulous, fabulous guy. And the three of us would strategy and stuff, but the lawyer and my CEO would meet with the lenders, not me because that would distract me and get me down and'd have to prepare for the meetings. and so I, I worked in the good stuff. I call I worked with the good stuff hmm. during those bad years. It was five years. It took me five years to work it out and make all my deals and pay everybody back. And so in that five years, but I managed to build a nice little pile up on the well, other side.
0: Now, you know, you mentioned in the, in the pre-call before we, we hit record here about how you find you have great people around you for the details. and yeah. obviously people you trust, Yeah. but I mean, what has it taken and how have you found that you've been able to, to really lean on these people to make sure they're covering all those details? What are the questions you ask them or how do you make sure something's not missed because we're all human?
1: Okay. Well, Remind me to answer the question directly if I get off it, but I got to start at the top of the organizational chart.
0: Okay. So
1: I surround myself, I look at myself as I am the CEO of the company or the chair. Usually I start with I'm the chair. So that means I have to surround myself with a CFO, a CEO, a CIO, all the different people who make up a company. So initially when you start, you're kind of everything. You know, but then you have a good, hopefully you have a good legal advisor and a good financial guy. Now my financial guy is responsible for that. My legal guy is responsible for the legal. And I am the leader, which is means that I have to lead and have the vision for the company. I'm in charge of the vision where we're going. So we're going to acquire multi-unit houses in Phoenix, Arizona. That would be the vision. Now I might roll that vision out as I get going, but day one, that would be the vision. So now I get myself in Phoenix, Arizona. What do I need? I need a Phoenix estate guy. I need a Phoenix lawyer. I need a Phoenix accountant. I need a Phoenix deal-doer. You know, I need all that. So I surround myself. I don't ever become that myself. Mm. My role is to lead. Mm. So I make the connections with people say, do you know where we can buy some good apartments? Who's the best multi-unit apartment salesman in Phoenix? Oh, that's Cliff David. Well, then let me get a hold of Cliff David and get talking to him. because I got to bring my responsibility, bring in the you know the carcass, <laughs> bring in oh, shoot the lion or shoot the antelope, and bring it into the to, to my CFO, my CEO, and we digest it, look it up, and go through all of the different phases you have to go through with a real estate acquisition. All that 148 points of due diligence. Mm. But so I really do surround myself, Corey. The point the point is, I really take my job. As the vision guy and the leader, very seriously, don't try and wear other hats.
0: Hmm. I see where you're going there. It's it's really instead of going out and trying to bird dog the deals for yourself, and then trying to negotiate those deals, and then trying to you know bring in the financing, you've got the team around you, and you've certainly grown to that point. And so, what are some of those? discussions you have with these people. Obviously, you trust them deeply. You've been probably working with for years, but what is the dialogue like and and how do you make sure that the right questions or what are the right questions to be asking of them so that they're ensuring that something's not going to go sideways and you find yourself 70 million in the hole?
1: Well, I think you can be wrong, but I think one of my other kind of secrets is my empowering people around me. When you work with me, you know that you're in charge of whatever you're gonna do. And Corey, you and I are doing a load of stuff. And do I tell you what to do?
0: Haven't even heard from you.
1: Do I tell you how to do it?
0: Nope. <laughs>
1: Is it getting done? Yep. So just side
0: note, man, phenomenal interviews are coming from it. Really excited about it. And just a plug to the GSEA, the global student entrepreneurship awards and the entrepreneurs organization. There's some very cool stuff coming from Peter Thomas on that. And so I'm I'm really happy to help, but that's, that's our plug. Now back to the show.
1: But it's a team you bring in the right people and what happened with you and I is exactly what happens with myself and people I bring around me and all my teams is that they're in charge. You know they're empowered and they're thrilled because they're doing what they do, you know, and they're doing it well and they want to shine. They want to shine because they're being allowed to do that. I am what do they call the guys that hover over the micromanager? I am the exact opposite of a micromanager. Hmm. I I call them when I think about them. You know, which is I mean lots. You know, I mean I don't just leave them, but. When I know they're operating well, every week I look at the names and what I'm doing with each piece. And then if I need to get in there, I want them to know that they're really empowered. So I say, my key there is empower your people. Hmm. And then you get the best. Then they, they want to get on the bus and do that. It's a different person. Like if you like let's say there's five people, they all want to get on the bus. But you got to pick out the ones who need that instruction. That, well, what do I do now? How do I do that? Well, where are the leads? How do I get the lead? No, I want you to tell me.
0: Yeah, You know, (laughs) sounds like a lousy sales guy. Right. Yeah. I hear where you're going there and it's, it's in the empowerment and the dialogue there, that's where the trust comes and and you can have those open conversations.
2: Yeah. 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 Uh,
1: You know, I just interviewed a guy this morning, very exciting guy. And I told him, I said, you know what? I've got about 10 people I've been talking to and you've just jumped to number one. I said, you're like way past everybody else. And I look for what I call the AMCs when I talk to people. And the AMCs are attitude. What is their attitude? Motivation? Are they motivated? Are they self-motivated? Are they the kind of guy I got to ring out in the morning, get them out of bed? Or are they motivatable? And the last word is commitment. You know, what's that word commitment mean? It's interesting because the guy I just talked this morning. He said, No, Peter, if I was gonna have a meeting with you at two o'clock, he said, if I'm not there, then have a small moment of prayer because I must have died. You know, and that's I feel the same way. So AMCs. When you're interviewing, just take and go back historically. and You can talk to them, people about their life and what they've done to get the right people on the bus and really explain the bus. Like, you know, like, for example, if I was going to recruit Charles here and I say, Charles, I'm going to hire you and I'm going to recruit you and I want you to become a salesman for me. And I, you're going to have to go through that jungle and you have to fight your way through the jungle. And it's a jungle, but that's what you do. You go through jungles. Now, if you go through the jungle and tell me you're an experienced jungle fighter, so you need a knife and a gun, and some food, then I'll give you that knife, gun, and food. But it's your jungle, not mine. I'm not going through it. And so really let the people understand the demands and the task prior to the engagement. And not BS, the real deal. Like how tough is it, and what your expectations are. Charles, I expect you to go through that jungle. Once you've got your knife, and your gun, and your food, I don't want to see you for three weeks. I know that you're getting through to the other side. You know what I mean? But here's a phone. If you run to a big lion, we'll give me a call.
0: <laughs> we yeah.
1: through. But it's your jungle, your journey.
0: So, just on a side, for anybody who's listening, Charles is our producer and he's on the yeah. line here. And <laughs> so, Charles, you didn't yes. have to hear it from me. This is, this is Peter telling you how it should be. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go, Charles.
0: Right on. So, man, lots of places we can go here. And I really like it's interesting to hear the leadership aspects of it. Can we talk a bit about finance? And you're also a funder yourself. So you Mm. fund projects, I would imagine some that are in your portfolio and some that are outside. What do you look for in funding deals? What should people know about funding these deals? And okay, absolutely. But let's go a level further. There's going to be the metrics of a strong deal, good cash flow, and so on, the right equity covenants and things, the right equity positions. But what else do you want to see from these borrowers?
1: Before all that, I want to see the relationship and the track record of the borrower. Hmm. I'm very relationship oriented, very relationship and you could be light in money, but if you're heavy in integrity and heavy in track record, you know, then I'm, I'm very possibly in. I look at the human balance sheet.
0: Okay. Well, I guess it's the kind of thing that these people have to build relationships with you. Correct. And and it's it's not the kind of thing where they're just going to drop a pitch deck on your table and you're going to look and say, okay, well, let's write a check.
1: Yeah, no. When I always want to talk to the people in the deal, and if I can't talk to the people and understand that, like even if I had somebody come in with an LP and they wanted to, you know, well, first rule I've got with it, with LPs is that I've graduated the point. I say I only want to take a million dollars, so that that way I'll do enough due diligence. You know, if you, a lot of them I call them pity investments. You just put fifty thousand or hundred thousand in them, and you kind of forget about them, and they go away and. People just pitch you, and I wound up with one time. I looked at my balance sheet. I had I had too many of those. Mm. So I, I don't want any more of those. I want to make investments that I that I really care about and understand and and understand them completely. Yeah. And so that the investments I have, I really do understand, and I know the CEOs of all the firms. I will have a long conversation with them before I invest. And understand their game plan, their empathy, and what they're all about. Are they the kind of person you know that I can count on? Because you know perfectly well, Corey, that something's going to go wrong. It's not going to be according to that slide presentation that you.
0: Yeah, got, yeah of course.
1: It, you know, you got pitched on. So, if something goes wrong, what does happen? Who's you got around him? Who's the team, and all that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, and when it comes to real estate and things like that, what are some of the characteristics of deals that you look into or that you would be investing in, and? Where do things go wrong?
1: Well, you're on a moving carpet with the economy. So like right now today, looking ahead, you look at there and it's a little dim when it gets out about a year out, two years out. It's a little dim. What's going to go? Are we lending too much money or will we create enough money in these countries to keep our economy going and self-sustaining? My belief is yes. I'm very bullish on the future. I've always have been. And even in the depth of the dark, I have a real belief in our spirits. You know that we're gonna we're gonna come through. And I very much believe in an entrepreneurial spirit. That's one of the reasons I'm so involved in the GSEAs is to keep that's the global student entrepreneur awards that we have in our program is to keep that entrepreneur spirit alive in our economies. Mm. Because I think they're critically important to have people be able to earn their own future and to say, well, I, I would like to have this, this, and this, and they can work hard and they can get it. We know everybody everybody can't, but that improves the life of everybody if the country keeps dying. Die- and, and that's what about the American spirit, you know? It's just a wonderful, wonderful spirit. It, somehow when they came over, I gave a talk the other day, and I was figuring, kind of figured out, and I thought, you know, we, you I know, said, all of us right here on this screen and the, your viewers are very blessed because I... We're the DNA. Our DNA comes from the people who left the old country and came to the new country, the pioneers. So the spirit within us is a growing spirit. It's not a lackadaisical lay back and kill the farm spirit. It's a new farms. So we're born of that. All of us, all of us here in America and Canada, we're born of that. So I always love the fact to know that my DNA is the pioneer.
0: Yeah. You know, it's an interesting point that I think that is something we should all be fighting for is the sense that entrepreneurship is the kind of thing that is the the backbone and the lifeblood of an economy. And it gives people purpose, gives them a lot of purpose. I would argue that somebody working in a company of five, 10 or 25 people and contributing there has a hell of a lot more purpose than than somebody else working at Walmart.
1: Absolutely, they do, and you know I've been blessed that I've had several startups, and the most exciting time in a company is that it grows from like one employee to five to ten to fifteen. You know that growth is so exciting; it's mm. just a, r- a ride you don't want to miss.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, now how about we shift gears here and talk about something else that's in your portfolio of work you do, and that's franchising. It's a world that I know nothing about. It's a world in which I think some people look as a great opportunity to find themselves in business. But then I think it's also an interesting discussion around how to build franchises and find your franchisors, if I have that the right way, or yeah. franchisees. So, what can you tell us about it? Where do you well, want to start?
1: Okay, well, let's start at the beginning of franchising. And the concept of franchising, if you went out now, Corey, you say, I'm going to start a company, you know, and you're going to sell widgets. Well, and if you're gonna buy the widget from somebody else, you're gonna build the widget. I'm gonna build the widget myself and I'm gonna sell the widget. Well, you have to set up a sales system, you have to set up a production system, you have to set up a delivery, you know, the delivery, how to build them a factory, all those kind of things. You have to do it. Well, when you buy a franchise, somebody else has invented all that. And you can pay them a fee to gain the use of their product, to gain the use of their brand. You know, and I call it a business in a box. All of their business operational tools, usually with a franchise, you get an operational manual two inches thick, mm. and it really tells you what time you should open for business. The ideal time would be seven o'clock. For example, for dogs, we have a franchise business called Dogtopia. And, you know, we tell the franchisee, you open doors at seven o'clock in the morning, about seven o'clock. You can't tell them exactly what to do, but here's the guideline. Right. So, we suggest the best times are seven o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock at night. We suggest you have a room for small dogs, a room for big dogs, you know. And here's the build that we suggest—that's because the best. Now you have to have safety gates to make sure that the dogs can't get out and run on the highways. So here's the safety gates. We suggest that you have the dogs should walk at a certain time of day, you know, take them out for a walk. So we give them this handbook of hundreds and hundreds of ways to run their business that have been tried and tried and tried. For years, by people to get the right way. The best ideas come from our franchisees. So you put all those ideas in a box that you now can buy that box for, you know, depending on what the franchise is, let's say $50,000. And now, now you get started. When you want a flag, you get the color of the flag. When you want a building, you got the exact floor plan you need. So you have all the things you need to run a successful business in that box. And that's franchising. And it's repeatable, 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 repeatable.
0: So- I'm sure that there's tons of franchise opportunities out there and you have to pay a fee to purchase the license, if you will, to offer. You have to have your startup capital and so on. How should those who want to buy a franchise value the startup fee there? And I mean, what's reasonable?
1: Well, you know, I found it interesting. I remember when I got involved with Century 21, you know, like 100 years ago when I first started, I met the founder. There was two founders, actually, Art Barlett and Marsh Fisher. And Marsh said, you know, I kept saying, to well, because they charge a 7% fee. So that means if I made $100,000, I got to pay them 7%. So I got to give them $7,000. And so what do you guys do for your money? What do you do for your money? And he said, well, Peter, he said, just think that you've been to our head office. You see, it's full of of people. There's a few hundred people working in there. We all go to work to figure out every single day how we can make your business a better business because we only get paid from your success. Mm. So When you think about it, if you do a million dollars worth of business, one person in your office you'd hire could cost you $70,000 just right. a year. Well, that's all you pay for all of that, yeah. but that's the total royalty, 7%. And some run 9%, some run 5%, but you know, the average, I've usually paid 7%, so I, I said, wow, you mean I make a million bucks and I pay 7%. That's a pretty good deal. You know, yeah, and we're always there to stand by and tell you what to do. We know exactly, what, and not only that, we come and help you. We we set you up operationally. We run conferences for you. We hook you guys all up by telephone so you can talk to each other about best practices. So it's really a crazy good deal. You know, it, I mean, sincerely, and I've watched. I mean, I've just seen it so much. You know, I was talking to one of our one of our first guys the other day. He just opened up a second five thousand foot store, and he's been in the business now for ten years. And he's so—he's like a kid. He's so excited. But he was making a half a million a year from his first store. He's going to make about what he did is he found he actually has another location now. So he found a perfect location where he can service that location from his location. You know, they can—he's going to just do so well, and he'd be making a million plus a year from two stores hmm. because he, he really does know what he's doing. But. He didn't go out and buy his own. Like he didn't say, I'm going to buy a doggy, a doggy daycare myself. I'm going to buy another franchise and pay you guys another $70,000. Might, well,
0: might as well pay you for all the work you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Your 7%. And where can things go wrong for these franchisees? I mean, because it's obviously, it's a business partnership. Exactly. Well, and when- so, and I, I don't want to dwell on the wrong, but I definitely no. want people to hear what they should be yeah. cautious well, of when investing in this.
1: Well, you know, I'm going to switch the question a wee bit Corey, to make, it's where they go right with the franchise. For example, selection okay. of, selection of the site. If you just went out on your own, you go out and you know, you might say, "Well, Starbucks is here, so that's good enough for me." You know, I'll get a star. Here, what, Starbucks, McDonald's. Those guys can't all be wrong. So let's set up right there. And the reality is, that could be totally could be wrong. You know, mm. the, the demographics of your business might not be that way. It just depends what you're, you know, depends what you're looking for. And so you, you've got to really study that and see what the, the flows of the traffic are, everything compared to your business. And usually a good franchisor will have the software that does that for you. Okay. So you can throw in all of, your, all of your questions into the software to come up with the best answer gotcha so another thing you can go wrong well you can go wrong with the experience of the franchisor you you really need to check them out who are they like what is the success of the ceo how long has he been there what's his track record you know again go to the people you know like for example dogtopia well we got a guy that was very very successful in australia he was a starbucks competitor and they wound up selling hundreds of stores to a third party and he was sitting there Waiting for me to call, really, because <laughs> he's—I mean—such he's a great CEO and experienced in franchising, understanding. You know, it's a very specific business franchising. Very, yep. very specific. I love the business itself.
0: Yeah, it is a specific business. It's a unique business model. How are franchise companies valued? And I mean, is it if it just just comes down to cash flow, or are there other nuances to that? Of, of well,
1: everything starts with cash flow. Yeah. But then it would then it would go how long have the franchisees been in business, how long has that cash flow been consistent? How much of the territory is sold out, like what's left to sell would be big, I'd look at. You know, yeah, where are they success How big a rollout more can you do? Like that's a big one. How like Canada, for example, you would immediately measure, if I was buying a franchise in Canada, measure what the market would look like. Yeah. You know, the whole market, and then see how much that market's available. And that's what we do with Dogtopia. We did quite a study of Dogtopia. We found that, you know, there was no competitors when we started. There was no, just mom and pops.
0: You know what I really like is with the world of Dogtopia and what you're doing there is it's got to be almost recession-proof.
1: Well, it is. It's even pandemic-proof. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, we definitely lost business. You know, we didn't have the, 2020 wasn't the greatest year like 2019, but we also didn't lose any stores. Yeah. You know, it was tough and our franchisees were unbelievable, but they went through that toughness you
0: know excellent okay i want to talk about something else that i think we need to shed more light on and that's around mental health and the Todd Thomas Foundation are you uh, all key okay to to speak to this
1: oh totally yeah as you know the i lost my son he was 35 and he chose to to jump off the hotel in new york city and take his life and he planned it before that he was bipolar he suffered from being bipolar, and he also had a sleep, real sad sleep disorder. Hmm. So, I don't know if you're like me, but if you don't sleep, I don't sleep. I, I'm a different guy. I need to. Oh, I'm need a
0: terrible my, person. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I need my eight hours. You know, and Todd couldn't do that. So, what we did is we formed a foundation, the Todd Thomas Foundation, to honor Todd and to always. Todd's my guiding light in my life. He's he's my he's my chairman. You know, I hmm. many times I measure myself and say, "Well, what would Todd think of this? How would he like it?" You know. And he was a beautiful, beautiful kid and just loved life itself, traveled a lot. And so, you know, when I started off, we said we would just work with mental health, but we've expanded that. I developed a program called Life Pilot, and it's a program that for people to understand what their values are, do they know what their values are, and then to live their life in alignment with their values. It makes life so much easier. Mm. And uh, Todd was very value-oriented. So... I actually went around teaching that program to CEOs all over the world for several years while we were in Switzerland. I took off from business, all business for 10 years. I left my money and my portfolio of, of assets with a guy in Vancouver and he managed them for me. And I went to a small chalet in Switzerland and really kind of reinvented myself when I lost Todd. And my wife and I, we developed this program called Life Pilot and I taught that primarily all over the world for 10 years. To CEOs mainly, but to the public and to policemen and to students have been, yeah, everywhere because it's so critically important to have a good life. If you if you're on your you mentioned it on purpose, if you're if you're doing things you love to do, then you're going to have a great life. Everybody needs that. The first thing to do that sit down and take a piece of paper and write down what your values are. What do you stand for? Family, your health. minor health, freedom, happiness, and integrity. That's my my four big values. And Hmm. I wrap my life around, everything else fits under my family, my relationships, all that fits underneath those four big ones. Yeah. And I make sure I don't do anything that would impair any of that. You know, so I would never do anything to impair my health or my freedom or my happiness. And I don't make moral decisions on that. I make, that's my choices. Those are my choices. Hmm. So if you can take those big things in your life and write them down and then live your life in alignment with them. Your job, your career, everything is good because you're not going against yourself. You're not, you feel so bad when you meet people who are, just hate what they do, but yeah. they do it, but they do it because they feel they have no choice. And I, it, there are lots of us that unfortunate. I mean, I've, I've shoveled gravel. I've worked in restaurants. You know, when I was a kid growing up, and I really have been up and I have been down. I've been, been all, all through that, that life, and we do have choices. We really do. It's a matter of exercising them. And surrounding yourself, one other thing, you know, Corey, that I've always done is surrounding myself with positive people. Mm. You know, you, you become like the birds you fly with, you know, birds of a feather flock together, they say. Yeah. And another thing I've always really felt is if I'm the smartest guy in the room, I'm in the wrong room.
0: Mm. Hmm. Doing something wrong.
1: Yeah. yeah, I I need to surround myself with people that I think I, you know, I can really respect that are smarter than I am. Yeah. And hopefully I can bring something to the table.
0: I just want to reflect on some of what you're saying there. One isn't around mental health and what you've done with the Todd Thomas Foundation, and then moving in and really building into helping people build their lives around the values that hold true to them. I mean, really, like we didn't know it, you and I, but that's where you and I first met in (laughs) what, 10, 15 years ago with with LifePilot. And that's been an interesting kind of interweave of. You know the relationship and friendship we've been building here. The values piece, I think, is is huge in the sense of being able to conduct yourself without having just ongoing cognitive dissonance of of feeling like you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah, I wanted to grab something right? Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I like where that's going. And now something else I want to touch on quickly here is, in fact, why don't we start to wrap this up? Well, I've learned from you that. Being positive pays, and you know, even in my own world, in my own experience, to go a little deeper here for all those listening is like I've recognized that my pessimism or pessimistic attitude at times can be—it's a liability, mm-hmm. right? There's been a lot of things I've missed out on by not keeping more of a positive attitude. Right. But you just exude that positivity, and it leads me to the next question here. Despite all the things that are going in the world, I mean, we've you know, really unprecedented times. What's your outlook for this? Where are you seeing opportunities for yourself and for the economy? And also to add to that question, how should entrepreneurs and companies be prepared for what you see is coming?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I see opportunity, you know, just huge opportunity because, you know, it's like if the economy will call the economy like water in an ocean, and as it goes down, reveals the treasures. <laughs> All the stuff gets shown and becomes obvious. So what happens mm. is, like for example, Westover Hills, That was the name of the project I bought in San Antonio. Well, that project was geared up, it cost 80 million. It was like $80 million. And the government sold it to me for nine. And then we sold it for 150 million. So mm. so what happened was just that the economy quit working and made that available. So what's gonna happen, in my opinion, in the next sort of 10, 15 years, is the economy is going to go crazy and well, and also with AI coming in, you know, and the technology stuff that's being invented to make our jobs easier. I just, a minute ago, I said goodbye. You didn't see, but I said goodbye to my technology guy. He shows up here. Every Tuesday, he comes in and spends, what do you need, Peter? But he's always busy an hour two hours, you know, setting things up, tuning them up, making them work. And I've got, like this. I have a Zoom studio. You know, I yep. can click right now and give you eight backgrounds, you know, that I have for my different companies. And it's like a, like a studio where I broadcast from to my companies, to my people. So it's unbelievable how well we can communicate now to what we can communicate uh, 10 years. I can turn the button and say, nine o'clock in the morning, I want to talk to my 150 franchisees at nine o'clock Monday morning. I don't have to travel anywhere. I don't have to go anywhere. I can yep. prepare myself bam, I'm right there. So you can take these tools that we, the people who have the tools to build, and take these tools and the new tools that are coming out and choose the right ones. You know, it's like going hunting to that jungle again. If you're going after elephants, then get an elephant gun. You know, if you're going after birds, you have a bird gun. Well, the technology is the same way. The technology is just an extension of us. Now, I'm not scared of it at all. In fact, my wife now tells me I'm her, I'm her tech guy. Because no. I learned if you turn your machine off half the time, that'll fix it.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just quick restart.
1: Yeah, you know, quick restart. You know? and so don't be afraid of technology. I say to all CEOs who are listening, grab the technology, nail it. Where can you use it in your business? And don't be afraid of it. So yeah. I just see opportunity ahead of us, you know, never ending.
0: That's amazing. Fantastic. Well, Peter, I'm really glad we finally got the time to do this. It's inspiring. And you've definitely lived a life from, as you put it in one of your bios, growing up in a gravel pit in Alberta. So (laughs) what a story, man. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, absolutely. I use a word every day to kind of keep me lined up for that day. My word for today is focus. And I think probably that word has helped me because I have a tendency to squirrel, squirrel, you know, and the shiny gold thing that runs by me to take a look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Peter. Stop that. Focus.
0: Okay, so so even at your success, you still have that issue too. Okay, that makes me feel a little better. <laughs> okay, Corey, thanks a million. It's been nice. Absolutely, Peter. Take care, man. Enjoy. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.